Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Troy. I'm one of the ministers here. Uh, it's been a joy over the Easter weekend to see every service across our weekend full to the back. Uh, and this week, uh, we have many people on holidays and enjoying time away. Uh, if you're here for the first time, a special welcome to you. Uh, it's a joy to have you with us, and we hope you enjoy hearing about uh, God's Word and the Lord Jesus. But now, let's pray, and then we'll get into uh, Acts 11 and 12. You can have that open. Our gracious Father, we praise you uh, for the Easter weekend and the joy it was to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus with so many. Uh, and we pray today that you'll be with those of us who can't be here, uh, giving them restful holidays and bringing them back to us safely. But we pray now for us that you would give us uh, insight into your word uh, and wisdom to know how to respond and live it out for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you think about your life, or when you think about the world today, do you see the Lord's hand at work? Uh, some Christians, when they, when they think about life, they, they see everything, absolutely everything, as the Lord's hand at work. A, a new job, a, a sunny day, a good conversation, a, a refreshing breeze. And they try, to, they try to work out how is God's hand at work in all these tiniest details of life. On the other side of the coin, you might have Christians who might do the total opposite. They go about life and just never really think about or see the Lord's hand at work. Uh, things just happen to them because, well, look, it's chance and fortune. Uh, or it's the mechanics of the world just running their course. Or maybe they say bad things happen because of the curse of sin, but not really any other reason. Uh, or they might say, yeah, God's in control, and he's concerned with the big things of history, but not all the fine little details of my day-to-day -day life. So how do you see the Lord's hand at work? How do you think about it? Uh, now I ask this not because this question is what all this passage is all about. Uh, this passage, this sermon, won't be able to answer uh, the question of all of that. How's the Lord's hand at work? Um, but our passage does say something about it. So if you look at chapter 11, verse 21, uh, we're going to look at the end of chapter 11 and chapter 12, which is read for us. At the end, uh, in uh, 11, verse 21, what it does say is, the Lord's hand was with them, and a large number of people became Christians. And so maybe as we go along, we'll see how the Lord's hand is at work. But today is actually our last week in the book of Acts for now. Uh, we'll be starting a new sermon series in the book of Romans very soon, so be excited about that, and why not be reading ahead? But let's remember where, what we've seen in the book of Acts of late. We'll need to refresh our memories because we've had two weeks, and we had Easter in the middle and public holidays, and so you know, your brain just leaks information when that kind of thing happens. So what did we see two weeks ago in Acts? Two weeks ago, we saw the gospel of Jesus is not just for the Jews, but that Gentiles, non-Jews, can repent, have their sins forgiven, and find life in Jesus. Through these miraculous circumstances, God sent Peter, do you remember, to the house of Cornelius the centurion, and he heard the gospel and was saved. And do you remember, if you flick back to chapter 11, verse 18, flick back and look there, this is what we saw, verse 18, Then they glorified God, saying, So God has granted repentance resulting in life, even to the Gentiles. Praise God. And it was this momentous turn, this great realization for those early Christians as they realized that God's plans for humanity were way bigger than they had ever imagined. 
Those first Jewish Christians had no idea that God's plans would extend to the Gentiles, let alone to us here today who sit here thankful for the salvation of Jesus. But they should have realized that. Because what did Jesus say at the beginning of the book of Acts? What did Jesus say exactly about this? Acts 1 verse 8, The risen Jesus said to his disciples, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, yes, in all Judea, yes, even in Samaria, but also to the ends of the earth, to all the nations. And so we've seen Luke, Luke who wrote Acts. Luke's been setting the stage and showing us the beginning of the gospel going beyond Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now starting to go, just starting to go to the ends of the earth. We've seen the, the Apostle Paul or Saul converted. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's about to go and preach the gospel to all the nations. We've seen persecution in Jerusalem, which means all the Christians are scattering across the world. What's the result of that going to be? And then we've seen the first conversion of a Gentile household with Cornelius. And then Luke then shows us in our passage today the next step, the formation of a Gentile church. So far, the big church has been down in Jerusalem, and then there's little clusters of Christians all around the place, but mostly Jews. But then in Acts 11, we get this big work of God, and he establishes this big and growing, mostly Gentile church. So come with me into the story. Luke shows us the gospel growing in Antioch and Jerusalem. And he begins with the revival in Antioch. And it starts in verse 19. So let's read it together. We didn't have this read before, so let's look at it. Luke says, Those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that had started because of Stephen, that's back in chapter 8, remember, uh, they made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the message to no one except Jews. So do you remember Stephen, first of all? He was one of the magnificent seven, one of the seven who were chosen for admin in the Jerusalem church, and he became the first Christian martyr when he confronted the Jews and then they stoned him to death. And so the persecution ramped up in Jerusalem. All, almost all of the Jewish Christians scattered and fled, thousands of them probably, fled to all the nations. Wherever they went, though, they just couldn't help speaking about Jesus, sharing that he is the Messiah, but really only to their fellow Jews. Jesus was the promised king of Israel, and they, had, they didn't yet understand that the gospel was for Gentiles until verse 19. So look at these beautiful words, chapter 11, verse 19. But there were some of them, some Jews, Cypriot and Cyrenian Jews who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Hellenists, to Greek speakers, to Gentiles, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. See, whatever the work of the Lord's hand is in the world, it's definitely people coming to know Jesus. You see, small clusters of these Christians were spread out across the, the whole world, uh, mostly Jews, and then one Gentile family comes to faith, and then God does this mighty and big work in the city of Antioch. A large number, was it, was it dozens, was it hundreds, a large number of Gentiles believe in Jesus, turn to him, and for the first time, a big 
mainly Gentile church is born. So far, the big church had been in Jerusalem, made up of Jewish Christians, but now a rival church, big church, is set up with Gentiles in Antioch. But are they a rival church? No, not at all. Because look at verse 22. The Jerusalem church hears what's been happening in Antioch and they send Barnabas to check it out. Do you remember Barnabas? His name means son of encouragement. And so he goes to encourage uh, very fittingly. And he's the one who sold a field uh, earlier in Jerusalem and, and gave the money to the apostles, to the church. Barnabas, he's a man filled with the Holy Spirit and with zeal. And he's trusted by the apostles. And so they send him up north uh, to check out things in Antioch. So what does he find when he gets there? There's more beautiful words in verse 23. When he arrived and saw, what did he see? The grace of God. God in his kindness had saved all these people. And so he was glad and, and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with a firm resolve of the heart. So on behalf of the Jerusalem church, he accepts and welcomes them and he urges them to keep going for the Lord. This is no rival church. It's one and the same people of God. Jesus, he's torn down any dividing wall, any hostility, and he's united his one people, Jew and Gentile, so they love and they accept one another here. I think that's just another helpful lesson that we shouldn't let anything Anything come between us and our fellow believers, no matter what differences we might have. Isn't that right? If someone genuinely believes in the Lord, if they are a brother or sister in Christ, don't let anything divide you if Jesus doesn't. But things didn't stop there in Antioch. Uh, once Barnabas was there, look at verse 24. It says that large numbers continued to be added to the Lord to become Christians. So this church, it just keeps growing and thriving. And so Barnabas decides to do something about it. He goes and finds Saul, the Apostle Paul, in Tarsus, and he brings him back. And this is the first time we see Paul and Barnabas working together side by side for the gospel as co-workers in mission. So together they stay for, the whole, for a whole year in that church to make sure that that church is grounded and firm in the faith and in the gospel. And I think we just have to realize what a big step this is in the book of Acts, in the history and the cause of Jesus' gospel. See, we might read this and we say, cool, more people are becoming Christians. That's wonderful. That's great. And it is. But it's more than that. Because what we see happen from here on in is that Antioch becomes the center for Christianity in the world. Did you notice the end of verse 26 before? Have a look at the end of verse 26. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. That's how big this is. That's how many people came to faith in Antioch. This is where Christians first got their name from. And today, well, we finish our series in Acts, but when we come back to Acts later on, and we, or if you read ahead in chapter 13, what do we see? We see from chapter 13 on, the Apostle Paul goes on his three missionary journeys around the Mediterranean with Barnabas and with others, proclaiming Jesus, establishing churches all over the world. But where does he start from whenever he sets out on a journey? And where does he come back to to give reports and updates on what has happened? Antioch. 
From here on, Antioch is Paul's home base. It's on the right there. It's his sending church. And so just as we might send out the newbies to the Philippines or the Blousers to Argentina or the McDowells to Paraguay from us, and every few years they come back to us and they report what God has been doing, how he's been at work, that's what Antioch is to Paul. That's what Luke is showing us. That's why he's showing us this story. It's a huge moment in the spread of the gospel. The Lord's hand is at work. He saved this Gentile church So many Gentiles coming to faith. But more than that, it's a church that sees the gospel then spread to the ends of the earth. They play a pivotal and central role. Just think about it. You and I sit here today because of the church in Antioch. Because they were the ones who sent Paul and Barnabas and others to proclaim Jesus. If you know Jesus, you and I sit here because of the Lord's hand at work there in Antioch. Praise God for that. So the Jerusalem church, the mother church, with the apostles, they love and accept the Antioch church. Uh, and then the chapter finishes with this little kind of footnote of a story, but it's actually another, another really beautiful little event. The Jerusalem church, they accept the Antioch Christians, but then the Antioch church loves the Jerusalem Christians. So if you look at verse 27 to 30, uh, the Holy Spirit, he warns about a great famine that's coming. And so what does the church in Antioch do? Well, they bundle up food and money and they send it to the Christians in Judea and Jerusalem. The Jewish Christians, they loved and accepted these Gentiles. The gospel of salvation came from the Jews to them. And so now the Gentile Christians love and help their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ when they face this time of need. That's just another example to us, isn't it? Again, we are to love and serve our brothers and sisters in Christ despite any differences we might have. Isn't that just the logic of the gospel? If your family in Christ, if you are one in him, then put aside the differences and you love and you help those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's this mention of the Jerusalem church that makes Luke shift from talking about Antioch back to talking about Jerusalem. And it's here that Luke has one more thing to say about Jerusalem. And on your outline, you can see this is the second part of our passage that we had read out before, persecution in Jerusalem. And the focus here is very much, yes, on the persecution of the church in Jerusalem, but it's also very much about the persecutor, King Herod. Now, the family of uh, the Herod family of kings is a confusing thing if you've ever read about them in the New Testament. There are multiple King Herods in the New Testament. So, whenever it says Herod, you have to work out which Herod is this. Uh, None of them are nice, as many of them as there are. Uh, But this Herod, this Herod is Agrippa I, and he's the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who tried to have Jesus killed as a baby. So this is the grandson of the man who did that. And this Herod, well, he walks in the same ways as his forefathers. Because look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 12. About that time, King Herod cruelly attacked some who belonged to the church. And he killed James, John's brother, with the sword. So the scene is changed up from rejoicing to sadness. From Antioch to Jerusalem now. 
We're back in Jerusalem. The persecution ramps up. And sadly, we have the second Christian martyr and the first apostle to be killed. Herod kills James. Uh, this is James, the brother of John, the, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, Jesus called them. James was one of Jesus' earliest disciples, one of the twelve, and he was one of the three closest disciples to Jesus, along with John and Peter. And so this is just a massive blow to the church. We don't know exactly how or why, but James, he's cruelly executed for his faith and preaching Jesus. We need to remember that although it might seem far off and distant and like a thing that will never happen, we need to be ready that one day we might face death for the name of Jesus. Uh, we need to pray that we would have the same resolve to remain true to the Lord like James or like Stephen did. So James is dead, but Peter is next. Look at verse 3. When he, Herod, saw that it pleased the Jews to have James killed. That's just an awful thing to think, isn't it? Uh, he proceeded then to arrest Peter too during the days of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers, each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So the anti-Christian Jews in Jerusalem, uh, they were happy James was dead. And Herod goes, hmm, if I can make them happy, maybe I'll go for the head honcho. Peter. And I hope you get this kind of eerie sense of deja vu. Uh, this is now the third time that Peter has been jailed. Uh, but the difference this time is Peter is all alone. But also, when does this happen? It happens during the Passover week, during the same week in the calendar that his Lord was arrested and killed. And Herod's intentions are very clear. He's not just giving Peter a bad Airbnb for the weekend. No, he intends for this to be the last place where Peter stays. Again, are you praying for that same resolve as Peter and strength to be faithful if one day someone wants to throw you into prison for Jesus? But verse 5 gives a hint of hope. It says, so Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was being made earnestly to God for him by the church. And of course they would pray. That's what God's people do in dire situations. Because God is the only one who can do something. And in this instance, he does do something. At the last hour, the night before Peter's kind of planned mock trial and execution... God sends his angel to miraculously free Peter. Just as God had shamed and humiliated the Jews when they imprisoned Peter before, now God shames and humiliates Herod. We don't have time to go through it all in detail, but let's just notice a few things from verse 7 on. Uh, first of all, I just love how, brunt, how blunt and abrupt this angel is. Uh, he turns up in the cell, he whacks Peter on the side and says, Get up, put on your clothes, let's go. Uh, he sounds like an impatient parent rushing his family out the door. Uh, I've never done that. Um, and Peter, he doesn't think it's real at first. He's just like going along with it. He doesn't know what's going on. And then all of a sudden, he realizes he's in the street and the Lord has rescued him from Herod. So off he goes. He finds his way to, the fellow believers, to a fellow believer's house, to Mary, the mother of John Mark. Uh, and now this is the time, actually, that we're introduced to John Mark for the first time. Uh, this is Mark who wrote Mark's Gospel. 
uh, which is pretty cool. He, he's the cousin of Barnabas, and we'll see in the coming chapters when we get back to Acts, uh, John Mark travels around with Paul and Barnabas uh, and preaches the gospel with them. So Peter, he turns up, he knocks on the door, and the girl who comes to the door is just so amazed. She runs back and tells all the people in the house, and they're like, that's not Peter, Rhoda. Don't be silly. Peter's in jail. You've lost your mind. Uh, it must be his messenger, or it must be his angel, which is kind of a weird thing they say. We're not sure what they really meant by that. But eventually, they let him in, and they rejoice, uh, and he explains everything. And then Peter disappears into the night. He, he, he flees, and we don't see him again for another few chapters. So what do we learn from that story, that miraculous salvation and rescue? We learn that God, by his power, can and does protect Peter. His hand is at work. And God can and protect his people as he chooses and in his wisdom. We have to be really clear that this is not a promise that God will protect his people all the time and in every way. That's actually just really obvious from the story because Peter was imprisoned before he was rescued. Uh, and eventually, Peter, some 20 years later, was killed for his faith. And James, James wasn't rescued at this time, was he? I'm sure the church was praying for James just as much as they were praying for Peter. But God, in his wisdom and goodness, decided that it was James's time to go now and it was Peter's time to be rescued. His purposes to, to get the gospel to the ends of the earth and to bring glory to himself through Jesus, his plans mean that James died now and Peter was rescued. We don't know exactly why. Uh, we can't know the mind of God on all these things. Why would we expect to be able to? We need to humble ourselves and recognize that he is God and we are not. The Lord's hand is at work, but he doesn't always tell us what his hand is doing. Instead, we trust him, his wisdom and his power and his goodness. We can trust that he will give us all the protection that he wants to give us, and he knows what's best. Most of all, he'll give us what we need for our eternal good, and most of all, for his glory. And what we trust is this. This is what we learn from this story. No human power, no force of evil can stand in God's way. All he has to do is send one of his angels and the job is done. And it's this, uh, little, it's this uh, that leads us to the last little bit of our passage today. Uh, and God sends another angel to do another job. Uh, because here, while Luke finishes the story of uh, Peter and the persecution in Jerusalem... He wants to cap off the story of Herod and talk about his just end. So what happens to King Herod? Well, some of his subjects, they, they kind of hold a political rally or a party for him. He's been angry with them, and so they try to appease him by throwing this big event. Uh, he's a tyrant, and so that's what he needs. He needs to be appeased. Uh, and you can actually read about this story in the writings of Josephus, the Jewish historian. Uh, he gives much more detail about uh, some parts of this event, and it's outside the Bible. I'm not going to look at it now, but you could look it up yourself in Josephus. So verse 21, Herod, he comes out in all his royal attire. He sits on his throne with, with pomp and majesty, and he gives this address. And, while, and because these people are trying to win him over and trying to flatter him, to him, flatter him what do they say? Verse 22, 
the people assembled began and began to shout, It's the voice of a God, not of a man. They're sucking up to him, do you see? And it's at this point that God has had enough of Herod. See, Herod's killed one of his apostles. He's imprisoned another with the intention of killing him. And so now he does this to cap it all off. Look at verse 23. At once an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he became infected with worms and died. It's a pretty uh, sobering moment, isn't it? I find people with different personalities respond differently. Some people read that and they have a little chuckle. Uh, Some people are really saddened by such an event. But notice the order. It doesn't say he died and the worms ate his body, as happens with everyone. No, he was infected with worms in his gut and that's what killed him. Again, you can read about what Josephus says about this. He says Herod was struck with intense pain and died five days later. Josephus, he doesn't say this, but Luke does. This was the Lord's hand. Uh, But Luke does say uh, this is the Lord's hand. It was his angel that he sent to strike him. That's, that's again, a pretty confronting little story, isn't it? Uh, But Luke, he's actually just unashamed to say this was a deliberate and just act of God. Herod had done great evil to deserve this. He knew about the God of Israel. He was the king of, over the Jews. He knew about the Jewish law. He maybe even claimed to believe and live out the Jewish law. He knew full well that he was accepting blasphemous words for himself and taking the glory that belongs to God alone. So not only will God protect his people, he will also judge the evil and bring them to justice. And again, just like we saw with the protection of Peter, uh, we can't say exactly how and when God will judge an evil king or a leader. We can't know the mind of God on all these things and always know what his hand is doing, but we can know and trust that he can and does work for righteousness and justice in the world. And he does that throughout history. And ultimately, no, he will do it in the last day when his son returns. So Herod, he meets his just end. And then the very next verse shows us the end result. And again, we have these beautiful words. Look at verse 24. Then God's message, the word of God, the gospel, flourished and multiplied. Gospel growth is what Luke wants to show us. Whether it's in Antioch or whether it's in Jerusalem, anywhere, he wants to show us that the Lord's hand is at work. That's what he wants to show us more than anything else. Have you noticed that as we've read through Acts week by week? That's all Luke cares about. He wants to show us gospel growth. He wants to show us how God's message flourished and multiplied. He wants to show us that, that through the persecution of Stephen and the scattering of Christians and their boldness to proclaim Jesus, that through that, a Gentile church was born in Antioch. And he wants to show us that through this church, God would provide for another church in Jerusalem. And he wants to show us that through this church, the gospel would go to the ends of the earth, to more people and places. Luke wants to show us even that the persecution of God's people and the removal of an evil king, that it's all the Lord's hand at work to grow and multiply his word to more and more people. 
And he wants to show us these people who were impacted by the gospel. Think of Saul and Barnabas. Think of John Mark and his mother Mary and James and Peter. He wants to show us these people. Why? To show God's message flourishing, multiplying, going to the ends of the earth. The Lord's hand is at work. And Luke wants us, I think, to see our world and our lives in the same way. And God caused these words to be written for us as scripture, these words in the book of Acts, for that reason. So that we might see the Lord's hand at work there, there, and then here today. So that we might catch the same vision and zeal and passion for the gospel to grow, for God's message to flourish and multiply in the world, for the good news of Jesus to go to the ends of the earth. So that everyone who believes can be saved. There's nothing more important to Luke. It's what God is doing in the world since then until today. And there should be nothing more important to us. Let's pray that that will be so. God, our Father, we thank you that we see your hand at work in the book of Acts and that we can look at our world and see your hand working in the lives of people, bringing them to repentance and faith in your Son as they hear the powerful word of the gospel. Father, we pray that your hand would continue to be at work, bringing many people to humble themselves before you and know eternal life and salvation and joy forever. And we pray that you'll be at work in us to be supporting the work of that gospel going out, whether it's across the sea as we support mission or whether that be in our own lives as we speak to families and friends and neighbours about who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And we pray that you would give us strength in his name. Amen.